it is good to be here this morning. As I say, it's great to have Tiffany with us and, uh, and Josh and Sarah too. Uh, so do say hi to them. Uh, I have to be honest, I did uh, a classic thing yesterday as a British man. Uh, I just wandered around in the sunshine. And so the reason that I'm wearing this top today is because it blends in with the rest of my body. Um, uh, Oh my goodness, um, having lived in three years in Arizona, you would think I would, I would have figured out how to uh, put some sunscreen on, but, but no. So um, uh, if I move a little gingerly today, that's great. And if anyone comes up and puts their arm around my shoulders uh, you know, uh, afterwards to thank me or whatever, please don't do that. Um, it will not be even slightly appreciated. Well, anyway, um, do keep your Bibles open at Mark chapter 8. Um, we'll be spending a, a, a good amount of time there this morning. As we, as we think about this theme that we've been uh, we're thinking about for the last few months, simply Jesus, we want to see him clearly, don't we? And what we've been saying over the past uh, couple of months is that there's a whole variety of different ways of viewing Jesus, of knowing him. But who is the real Jesus? What is he really like? We, we, we come with so many assumptions often to Jesus, so many different uh, ideas that are out there in culture. Who is Jesus? What is he like? How can we see him clearly? That's what we're praying for and what we're hoping for today. The good news is that, uh, that we'll see this morning is that Jesus himself helps us to see him clearly. So uh, let me pray for us and ask God to speak to us today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this time. We thank you that uh, you graciously speak to us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would still our hearts now, that you'd open our minds, and most of all, that you would be present amongst us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, you are the one who works in us to help us to respond to the word of the Bible, and we need your help this morning. So I pray, bless my words. Uh, lead us into truth today. Help us see Jesus clearly, we ask in his name. Amen. So we're actually, um, we're coming towards the end of our time in Mark's gospel. Uh, we uh, are going to have our, uh, our last sermon in the series next week with, uh, with Malk. He'll be wrapping up the rest of Mark 8, and then we'll be leaving Mark uh, for a little while. But hopefully what you've appreciated whilst uh, we've been studying this book together is that one of the central themes and big ideas of the first half of the Gospel of Mark is the question of Jesus' identity. Who is he? That is, that is the question that is being posed all the time in the first half of Mark. Um, it's a question that has been repeatedly voiced both by Jesus' admirers and by his opponents. They're constantly asking. Think about the disciples in, uh, in the boat, in the storm. Jesus calms the storm, and they're terrified, and they say, who is this? That is the question, really, that defines the first half of the Gospel of Mark, and it's 16 chapters long, so we're coming to the end of chapter 8. We are halfway through for all of you mathematicians. Um, but we saw last week that Jesus himself was perplexed at his closest friend's lack of insight. After he had fed the 4,000 at the start of chapter 8, and his disciples still don't get it, he says to them in verse 21 of Mark 8, do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? 
uh, I was sharing with my small group this week that um, as I was preparing that message last week, or what, I, what I usually do when I prepare sermons is I print off the, uh, uh, the, the passage and then I highlight and scribble and all these kind of things. Next to that question where Jesus says, do you still not understand? I wrote in capital letters, no. <laughs> That's often how I feel when I spend time with Jesus. I still don't understand. I've been a Christian since 2001. I still don't understand sometimes. I struggle to get it. Now, some of you will remember, if you're film buffs, uh, the release back in 2009 of a movie called Avatar by James Cameron. It was kind of a big movie back then. Um, and it was, it was pretty groundbreaking because what it did was it brought 3D uh, into mainstream cinemas. You remember, remember that? Uh, for a couple of years, it felt like every film you went to see had to be a 3D movie, otherwise no one would go and see it. Um, the studios went to any length they could to make things shoot out of the screen at you. Monsters would like kind of go and grab you and you get people screaming and ducking and things like that. Um, it didn't really catch on. I think lots of people, including myself, found it kind of gimmicky. But the one thing about 3D was that you could only watch it if you wore those uh, really sexy blue and red glasses. I mean, everyone looked great. All those kids going on dates together, you know, you have to go put these awful uh, 3D glasses on. Um, and if you took those glasses off, what you realized was that you could kind of see what was going on on the screen, but it was just really blurry. Uh, there was no clarity about what really was happening. And it was only when you stick the glasses on uh, that, you, that you were able to gain any sort of, uh, of clarity around what was happening. And it can be a bit like that with Jesus sometimes, can't it? We sort of understand who he is. We sort of understand what's going on. Have you ever done that? You've been reading your Bible and you're kind of like, oh, I think I know what's happening here, but I'm not really sure. Our vision of Jesus can sometimes feel a bit blurred. And so what we need is the spiritual equivalent of those 3D glasses that, that we can pop them on and see him clearly. Wouldn't that be wonderful when we come to the Bible each time we sit down, maybe by ourselves, we open it up, and then we just had some, some 3D glasses that helps us to see who Jesus is. Well, I want us to talk together this morning about how we can see Jesus clearly. What is perhaps the equivalent uh, what does the Bible hold out to us as our, our glasses that help us to see him more clearly? The question of identity is once again in the spotlight here in Mark 8. Uh, we have finally arrived at the hinge point in the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who are highlighters, it's time to get out the special gel pen, okay? Uh, because... We are about to read the central verse in the entire book. Everything has been building to this point, and then everything afterwards flows from this point. Okay? So Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? It's a question of identity, of course. And their reply isn't particularly encouraging. The disciples report, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. In other words, the crowds don't have a clue. They don't know. They know there's something special about him, but they still can't piece the puzzle together. But then Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? And this is the great moment of clarity that all of Mark's gospel has built towards, where the disciple Peter boldly steps forward and proclaims, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. 
and we should expect fireworks to go off in the background. You know, Jesus wheels around, gives him a big high five, you know, because this is what this is what we've been waiting for. This is the moment where the penny drops. Everything's been building towards this from chapter 1, verse 1. I don't know if you remember, uh, we started Mark's Gospel in, in a series way back last year. So it was ages ago. Some of you weren't even part of the church then. But Mark 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. That's, that's who Mark is presenting Jesus to us as. And it's taken almost eight chapters of back and forth for the disciples to finally realize that. Peter finally realizes that. Now, Messiah, that's an interesting term, isn't it? It's not a term that's used a whole amount, apart from in the Jewish community just around the corner from us. I'm sure they talk about it a lot. Um, but the Messiah, I mean, we, we, kind, we kind of use it sometimes in common parlance if, uh, you know, so someone has a Messiah complex, or uh, if, your, if your football team signs... Uh, Erling Haaland, the Messiah, has arrived. He's going to save the day for Manchester City or whatever. Not that they need the day saving anyway, but the Messiah is, I guess in, in biblical terms, it carries a similar sort of connotation, right? But far weightier in the sense that the Messiah was God's promised king and the, and the rescuer of God's people. It's not just Mark's gospel that has been building to this point. The whole Bible has been building uh, to this point. We've been waiting for the coming of God's chosen rescuer. For those of you who know your Bible, think back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve reject God. They push him away. For the first time, humanity is living with our fist in God's face, and we've... uh, and we're experiencing all the consequences of sin starting to unfold. And Adam and Eve are like, oh no, this is terrible. What have we done? And God, in his kindness, promises to them that one will come from the line of Eve to crush evil and to restore humanity to God. It's the first time, the first indication that God's chosen one will come. And so when Peter says to Jesus, I've got it. I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You'd expect Jesus to go, finally, you got it. Nice one. You can see. Well done. But he doesn't. He doesn't. In verse 30, what he actually does is tell Peter, zip it. (laughs) Keep it to yourself for the time being. Don't, don't go and shout this around. Now, I think that's a little bit confusing, don't you? I, it, it's at least surprising. I, I, that's not, I think, what we would expect. But I think the reason Jesus does that becomes clear when we take a closer look at what has just preceded this incident in verses 22 to 26 with the healing of the blind man. And what we... What we notice, or what we, the encouragement that Peter gets, uh, I think, uh, in, in this moment, and the encouragement for us today is, spiritually speaking, we are to keep searching for 2020 spiritual vision. That's, that's the encouragement. That's what, that's what we're being called to do today. Keep searching for 2020 spiritual vision. Let me, let me show what I mean. Um, I became a Christian at 15 years old. 
I'd grown up in church all my life. Um, I mean, not all my life. I, I did actually go outside uh, of the church sometimes. Um, but I just not got it. When my dad was my dad was a minister. Uh, I used to do Bible time. I think I've told some of you guys. I used to do Bible time every night as, as a kid at home. My dad used to read the Bible to us. I used to hate it. Oh, my goodness. I hated it so much. I used to lie there, just put my head down on the table after, after dinner, just like, well, come on, Dad, come on. I, I wasn't interested at all. It, it was like I was staring at Jesus, full in the face, my dad or my mum, presenting me with who Jesus was every single day. I just, wasn't, I just couldn't see him. It was, like, it was like I was blind. And then one day, pretty, pretty suddenly, actually, pretty dramatically, I believed. And belief, that's what spiritual sight is. We all of a sudden can see with the eyes of faith, and we believe. And like Peter, I said, not quite in these words, you are the Messiah. You are the one who I need. My life, my hope, my joy is now found in you. All of us will experience something like that. Whether you've had that kind of dramatic moment where you went from not seeing to seeing, or whether it was a more gradual process for you. But, you know, looking back, I realized that at that moment, there were many things about Jesus that I still did not see very clearly. Oh, my goodness. Even today, there are still things about Jesus that I don't see very clearly. And that, I think, is what is going on here with Peter. Because Jesus heals many people in Mark's Gospel, it's one of the things, isn't it, about uh, when you really get stuck into the gospel, you, you, you get reading it, it almost just washes over you, the fact that Jesus miraculously heals someone. It's normal. You hang out with Jesus long enough, that, that, that's what he does. But actually, when we think about it, this is amazing. A blind man was healed by the touch of Jesus. But what I want to draw our attention to is the unique aspect of this particular healing in verse 22 to 26. I don't know if you noticed that there. This is the only time in Jesus' ministry, the only time, that it is a two-stage healing. It's interesting, isn't it? Every other time he heals someone or casts out a demon, uh, he speaks or he touches someone, uh, uh, and the miracle happens immediately. I mean, just a few chapters back, he's, he's raised a little girl from the dead. And all he did was he said, little girl, get up. And she did. But this time, with this healing, it takes two attempts. Now, let's, let's take a look at it. After he puts his hands on the blind man and spat in his face, I don't, uh, like, the commentators didn't, you know, they didn't go into that. Um, I was kind of interested in it, but um, apparently no one was that shocked guess, different hygiene standards in the first century in Jerusalem. Uh, anyway, um, he puts his hand on the blind man. Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And he replied, I see people. They look like trees walking around. And then, verse 25, Jesus once more put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So what are we seeing here? Eventually, his sight was clear. But initially, it's blurred. Now, what is this? Is this kind of like the, um, the tough jam jar version of, of a miracle where you give it a real go and then you have to stop for a bit and then your wife comes along and pops the lid off? Is that, is that, is that what's happening here? That happens 
all the time. Um, no, that's not what is going on here. It's not that this, this blindness is just too tough for Jesus. He has to give it a real load of spiritual elbow grease to make the miracle happen. Of course not. That's not what is going on. What was happening here is that Jesus is healing the man this way to make a point. He's illustrating what often happens to us and exactly what is happening to Peter and the disciples. Uh, we don't just go immediately from being blind to having spiritual 2020 vision. You'll know this if you've been a follower of Jesus for any, any length of time. Sometimes Jesus can seem very blurry to us. And that's what is happening here with Peter in verse 29. He is like the blind man who can suddenly see, but what he sees is not clear. Like the guy seeing people looking like trees, when Peter sees and declares that Jesus is the Messiah, it's vague and shadowy. And his, his sight needs sharpening up. You see, Messiah was a term that came with a whole load of political and national freight to it. There was the expectation, as I'm sure many of us know, that the Messiah would smash the occupying Roman forces. He would be the king in Jerusalem. He'd establish his throne. One of the reasons that Jesus tries to keep what is going on a secret so often which confuses us, I think, in uh, 21st century Manchester. One of the reasons he tries to keep it a secret is because every time people saw what was going on, they tried to make him king by force. They tried to pick him up and say, right, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's overthrow the Romans. People had an agenda for the Messiah. They said, this is the kind of person I want you to be for me. And Jesus was not that kind of Messiah. What, he, what the disciples needed to see, and what we need to see too, is not just that Jesus is the Messiah that we think we need. We need to understand what kind of Messiah Jesus really is. We often come to Jesus with our own set of expectations, don't we? We often say, this is who I need you to be for me today. But Jesus is encouraging us, telling us to look carefully and see who he truly is. And what we learn in verses 31 to 33 is that the place where we find our spiritual 3D goggles, where everything kind of coalesces and comes into perfect clarity, is when we look at the cross. Over recent days, um, I'm sure many of us have been thinking at least a little bit about the kind of person that we would like to lead us. Uh, it's been absolute chaos in Westminster over the last few days, hasn't it? Resignation after resignation eventually resulting in the resignation of the Prime Minister himself. And now, a new race is beginning to see who will replace him. And we no doubt have a list of qualities that we would hope for in a new leader. Being honest is probably right up near the top. Um, but what we're seeing at the moment is that the different candidates are pitching what kind of leader they promise to be. Now, I wonder how well we would receive a pitch that goes a bit like this. The kind of leader I'm going to be is one who is in severe distress and pain. I'm going to be the kind of leader that everyone hates. 
and eventually I'll be killed. Vote for me as your next prime minister. I don't think we would, would we? I don't think we would. Now, what that's showing us is that our set of expectations around the kind of person that we want to lead us, our set of expectations around the kind of person we want to follow, are radically different to the person that Jesus reveals himself to be. Jesus knows that in order for us to understand who he is, we need to understand why he came. And this is why this is the hinge moment in the Gospel of Mark. Because the rest of the Gospel is devoted to this theme. Up to this point, who is Jesus? From this point, why did he come? We see the change there immediately. Verse 31 says, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Now, the interesting thing, isn't it? Jesus has spoken in riddles, <laughs> often speaks in riddles. Uh, people have struggled to understand what he is saying, and yet Mark makes it very obvious and very clear that he spoke plainly about these things. Perhaps that gives us uh, a small sense of the shock and the utter confusion that Peter and the other disciples must have felt as they heard Jesus plainly explaining what was going to happen to him. This is not, as far as Peter was concerned, the messianic mandate. And it's amazing, isn't it? Amazing that this guy who, two verses ago, declares, you are the Messiah, so quickly, puts his arm around Jesus and said, just hey, come over here a minute. Come on, right, I, need, I just need to have a word. What are you doing? Look, if, you, if you're going to do this, if you're going to present yourself as Messiah, you need to learn to sell yourself, Jesus. You need to project differently. This is not the kind of language that is going to play well to the crowds. This is not going to end up in number 10 Jerusalem Street, okay? This is not the type of agenda you need to pursue. He rebukes Jesus. He shoots him down. Not a smart idea, right? Because what happens? In, in turn, he receives a stinging rebuke. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I thought about that a bit this week. Do we have in mind human concerns more than the concerns of God? I think the answer probably most of the time is yes. We think a lot about human concerns. What are God's concerns for you, for me, for our city, for those we love? What I think we're seeing here is that so often our agenda, our way of doing things, our understanding of what is important and necessary is completely at odds with God's way of doing things. Jesus did not come to be dictated to about what needed to be done for us. He did not need Peter to be his PR man, his campaign director, his head of policy. He didn't need that from Peter. He doesn't need that from us either. How often in our prayers are we basically just giving Jesus his agenda for the day? Lord, these are the things that you need to take care of. I'm presenting you with the, with the papers that you need to sign. This is what you need to do for me. What I mean by that is that 
we can be very tempted to want to present Jesus to people as this kind of victorious messianic hero, and he is, but to present him as kind of like the perfect lifestyle option, the smooth-talking God-man who will make everything easy for you. He's the favorite after-dinner speaker who will drop some wisdom bombs and entertain us and leave us feeling better than we did before. He'll fix all our problems. He'll give us what we want. Jesus, your man for a brighter future. Vote Jesus. That's what Peter wanted. He wanted a Messiah on his agenda. And Jesus says that kind of thinking is satanic. That's really strong, isn't it, for us to hear? But that kind of thinking is satanic because what it does is it obscures the cross. We want the victorious Messiah without the suffering bit. And if there's one thing that Satan would love to do, it is to obscure the cross from our sight and from the sight of those around us. Because it is only when we are confronted by the cross that we begin to see Jesus clearly. We do not find a Messiah in a polished campaign video of a self-made billionaire. We find the Messiah in a broken peasant from a first century backwater, staggering up a hillside, bleeding and gaunt. We find the Messiah mocked by the wise, crushed by the powerful, nailed naked before a baying crowd. We find the Messiah in a man howling in pain, gasping for breath, condemned as a criminal, succumbing to death. This is God's plan. This is God's concern, and this is who Jesus is. This is who the Messiah is. Radically different, I think, from what we would draw up if we were designing who the Messiah should be. But when we keep coming back to the cross, it gives us clarity. It gives us clarity first about who we are and what our what our great problem is. The cross tells us who we are. We love to impose narrative on our own lives. We're often trying to create that narrative ourselves to give us meaning. Sometimes we struggle to make that narrative fit. But what the cross does is it, it helps us to understand who we are. We are the ones who did this to Jesus. We are the ones who made this necessary. Our sin... Our rejection of God makes it necessary for him to die in our place in order that we might be forgiven. And what we, what we see here in Mark 8 is that the Son of Man had to suffer so that we might be comforted. The Son of Man had to be rejected so that we might find that deep acceptance that we spend most of our lives searching for. The Son of Man had to die so that we might know what it means to truly live. When we come to the cross, we understand who we are. We are sinners who have been rescues, rescued. The cross, uh, sorry, the cross defines our identity. But the cross also tells us, doesn't it, who Jesus is. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 4, 9 to 10. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins or as a propitiation for our sins, turning away God's anger against our sin so that we might know his love and joy and delight. I wonder this morning, do you ever doubt that God loves you? Do you ever feel like God is somehow frustrated or disappointed with you? Do you ever doubt that there is a limit on what he would do to help you, to care for you, to protect you? I think we do that all the time. I think that is just one example of where we are struggling to see Jesus clearly. And what do we need to do when we're doubting those things? We need to put on our 3D glasses, don't we? We need to come to the cross and find clarity there. Because when Jesus seems blurry and confusing, when we're not sure about how God feels about us, we're not sure how he relates to us, if we're feeling like we're this huge disappointment to him, when we come back to the cross, what we see is, yes, I am a sinner. But yes, he is a great saviour. And he is filled with love for me. Filled with grace, filled with mercy. This is who God is for me. We see it at the cross. And of course, let me just, let me just wrap us up here. Jesus didn't just speak plainly about the cross. But he also spoke to his disciples about his resurrection. After three days, he would rise. You know, there is no victory like this victory, is there? There is no king like our king. He has defeated death itself. I don't know what any of the, uh, the guys who are campaigning to be next prime minister are promising. They are not promising anything that is close to what Jesus promises us. Because if we trust in him, we can have confidence even in the face of death itself. That's a wonderful thing. I think so many of us live our lives in the fear of death. But the Messiah didn't come to fix our political system or to make our lives a little bit easier. He didn't come to deliver us from financial pressure and the challenges that we face every day. He came to forgive us of our sins, to restore us into relationship with God, and to defeat death for us so that no matter what happens tomorrow, the future with Jesus is gloriously bright. That is the hope that the gospel holds out to each of us today. That is who Jesus is. And when we come to him and see him through the lens of the cross and the resurrection, then we can say with the blind man that we're truly starting to see clearly that our sight is restored. I suppose the question for, for all of us that the first part of Mark's gospel poses to us is the question that Jesus asked his disciples, isn't it? Who do you say that I am? Friends, if you are struggling to answer that question, maybe not right now, but maybe later on today, or later on this week, if you are struggling to remember who 
Jesus is. Who do you say I am? Well then, come to the cross. Because at the cross, we find clarity. We find a saviour who deeply loves us. We find forgiveness of sins. And we find a hope for life forever. It's good news, isn't it? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And I know, Lord, I'm sure I speak for all of us this morning, that when I am asked, who are you, on a daily basis, sometimes I'm not sure. Sometimes I'm not sure who you are towards me. Often, Lord, we doubt your love, your kindness, your goodness, your care, your provision, your power, your glory, your justice, your peace. There are so many things that we struggle to believe. Who do we say you are? You are the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah? Sometimes we're not sure. And so we thank you for the reminder this morning to continue to look to the cross. For it is at the cross and in your resurrection that we see who you are most clearly displayed. And we pray that we would not be like Peter and essentially take you to one side and tell you, Jesus, what you need to do for us, what kind of shape of Messiah you need to occupy in order to satisfy our agenda. But I pray, Lord, that we would trust you for your agenda, submit to your agenda, because as we see who you are, you reveal to us that you understand far better than us what we need. And you also demonstrate that you are more than enough for us. You are everything that we could ever dream of and more. So Spirit of God, continue to show us Christ as we look to the cross and the empty tomb. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.